All right, if you have a Bible, open to the book of Ecclesiastes. We are nearing the end of our journey through Ecclesiastes. Say we're in chapter 10. And uh, we're going to, Pastor Albert's going to walk us through the whole chapter. We're just going to read the first four verses right now. And if you have a red pew Bible, you can find this on page 558. So again, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offense to rest. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome to Regeneration. Uh, we are approaching the end of our Ecclesiastes series, only three chapters to go, uh, 10, 11, 12. Um, some of you are really ready for this book to be done. Um, I've, I've heard from you. And uh, some of you are not looking forward to this book to be done because you're more uh, cynical. And so you enjoy these sorts of pessimistic things. So um, a happy medium, just three more left. So those who want to stay in this, you have three more weeks. And those, that you, those of you who don't, only three weeks left. So it's, it's good. Um, so in the next couple of weeks, we will make our descent um, from this book. And then um, we will be looking at uh, Pauline Epistle afterwards, still praying about um, which one that will be. But uh, that's, that's where we'll be heading next. Chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes um, is more uh, like, a, like Proverbs, and the, the thought behind it is to be more wise than to be foolish, and the preacher, or Koheleth, uh, who we've been looking at, gives us these pictures of wisdom and foolishness, and in verses 1 through 4, we're, we're given these kind of analogies that you can all picture in your head, and actually, uh, verse 1 is quite funny to me. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So I just, I don't know, maybe I have a sickening mind. But So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So this makes sense, right? This decomposing insect who once fed on feces and garbage and things like that is in um, this ointment that's supposed to smell good. And so this perishing, decomposing life matter is spoiling right in there. And so if you're thinking about just even a number of them within this, this is a pretty bad thing. And so he's likening that to the folly in the presence of wisdom and honor, that it doesn't take all that much folly to ruin wisdom. Now, when we read our news stories or when you watch news stories on the screen, we see, we read these things unfolding right before our, our, our very eyes. When people have invested lifetimes into making wise decisions only to watch them later on in life make a foolish choice and it kind of just crumbles everything that's happened in the past. We see this in church leaders where, you know, they've been well respected all these years and then they make a bad decision or, or just leaders in general. It just takes so little to ruin something really, really great that a lifetime of really good work can be forever tainted by something that just didn't take much time at all. 
that these foolish decisions just take moments to ruin friendships and marriages and families, career, reputation, any other relationships that took decades to build. It's a truth that it is much easier to ruin something than to create it. And we can look at something as beautiful as Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa and how many years it took to paint that wonderful work that's sitting in the Louvre. Most art historians believe that it took four years. There's some arguments there that it took longer than four years, but most of them agree that it's about three to four years. And he took this with him on his travels through Italy and staying at different castles and he was bringing this canvas and painting and getting inspiration and getting all this kind of stuff. But what took him at least three, four years to paint, how long would it take to ruin it? A second. You just have to put your hand through it and it's done. Right, So I was going to show you a, a YouTube video of this kid um, from China. He was on a tour, tour group. Uh, some of you are smiling. You probably saw it. And he tripped over like the guardrail, and his hand went through the painting that was like thousands of years old. Um, but um, I didn't want to show my face on the screen. So um, <laughs> It's so much easier to ruin things than to create beautiful things. And if you ever wanted to run an experiment because you're like, oh, that's not true, just build a half-built Lego and put it in the middle of our children's ministry and time it to see how long it takes them to destroy it and then rebuild halfway the same part and say, like, finish this model and see how long it takes them. And you'll be able to see that it takes way longer to build something beautiful and the more beautiful it is, the more detailed it is, the longer it takes and it's, all of it takes seconds to destroy. And so, when we're thinking about these things, those, those whims of foolishness, those knee-jerk reactions, those impulsive decisions, those lapses of good judgment, they really need to be kept in check because those things that took a lot of time to create in terms of beauty are ruined in a moment. You know, parents who spend all that time with a newborn and then a baby and a toddler and a preschooler and in all those grammar school years, it's just years and years where... They've invested, and then the, those kids get to an age where they start to understand things and they start to respond to things and how you've reacted and said things. And so all those beautiful years spent nurturing and loving them can be ruined in a moment that you say something or do something that you will regret. Now, of course, God is a God of redemption. He can make right the things that we ruin, but this is a comparison of wisdom and folly here in this chapter, so we're going to be taking a look at these things. There are a bunch of decisions that I can personally look back at as really, really pivotal decisions in my life. Things that turned out good, things that didn't turn out so good, things that turned out way better than they should have, things that turned out way worse than they should have. It's all this sorts of stuff. And there's a decision that I remember making in middle school that um, really could have changed my life. Um, when, I, when I was growing up, 
as a little kid, I grew up in Elysian Park in Los Angeles, right by Dodger Stadium. Um, it is not Hipsterville that it is today. Nowadays, everyone's cool as in Hipsterville and stuff like that. Back in when I was living there, no one walked outside at night. You just kind of closed your gate and you closed your metal gate in front of your door and you just kind of stayed in until the next day. You didn't venture outside. So it was kind of a dangerous area. And then so my parents wanted to move me out of there because I was going to start school. So we went to a suburb, this new development, and we moved out. And I started going to the school in the city of La Puente. La Puente, if you know, is not all that great of a city or safe of a city. It's uh, a lot of gang activity there. And so when the internet started uh, coming up, yeah, I'm old enough that we didn't have internet when I was a kid. But when, when, I, when the internet started coming up and they had this thing called greatschools.org, I was just curious, like, oh, what was my school back then? And I look it up and it was like a one. And I was like, what? And I'm looking, like every year, I'm just checking, just out of curiosity. And then one year I checked, and the school's not even there anymore. It closed down, right? So I went from that school, and then I went to this middle school that is not all that high of a ranking either. But it was in a really tough area in La Puente. Gangs were really, really prevalent. And so um, I was hanging out with a bunch of friends, and um, we were approached by some older kids who said, hey, you guys want to join a gang? They're like seventh grade, right? Thirteen years old. Like, yeah, you know, lowered cars, like a booming bass and stuff like that. It was cool. Like, yeah, this is cool. Like, yeah, we let's all do it. And so after school one day, we're thinking like, oh yeah, we're just gonna all get jumped in. It's a big mob of people that are really ready to jump us in. And so we're all three of us walking there. We're being escorted by these older kids, and I was like, you know what? I, I gotta, I gotta go. I can't do this. And I could sense like they were going to force me to go, but fortunately I was still in front of the school and there was still like teachers there and stuff like that, so they just let me go. But my other two friends went. And the real reason behind it all was because I was so afraid of my mom that she would totally beat me up if I did this thing, right? So I was just like, oh, I can't, my mom, my mom will kill me. I didn't see those friends for a week afterwards and I went to school the following week and I saw them and they looked horrible. They told me that they got beat by like sticks and they got hit and all this kind of stuff. And they looked really, really bad. They got beat up really bad. And we started separating because they started hanging out with all the gang bangers. And I was hanging out with whoever I was hanging out with back then. And um, as we grew up, um, I moved again, but I still kept in touch with those guys because they were good friends of mine, and they were both really smart guys. One guy in particular was really, really great at drawing. I remember him drawing, and he would you'd just tell him something to draw, and he could draw it, and it was incredible, the talent that he had. And Finally, I went off to college, and um, the, the not-so-artsy not guy, uh, I find out that he got shot in the neck by a rival gang because um, they got in some argument, and he got shot in the neck. And then that other friend of mine was in the car as a passenger, but they shot, they shot at them, but he was the only one that got hit, and he got hit in the neck. He didn't die, but he is paralyzed from the neck down from that time on. Um, I don't know how long he lived. I heard that he, he died um, when I was a young adult. But he got shot in the neck, and I was just thinking, like, man, if I was hanging out with those guys the whole time, if I got jumped in the gang, it's like... Those decisions that we make, you know. So we need to be wise about our choices. We need to be wise about 
this awareness that sin is out there and those times when our guard is down and we become really, really vulnerable to making poor decisions, to think about what we say before we say them because once those words leave our mouth, you can't really take them back. And when our tempers flare and when there are these offensive behaviors that we do or some things that we think are harmless but they actually cause a lot of sparks within the relationship, to be mindful of all those things. Verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. This is not talking about right-handedness or left-handedness or anything like that. This is um, wisdom and foolishness are issues of the heart. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 33, wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding, but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. Then to verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Not that he's blurting that out, but you just kind of see it. You can see them acting a fool. Right? Fools reveal themselves. It's not too difficult to recognize a fool because a lot of times they just can't keep quiet. They just broadcast it to the world that who they really are. Right? So you look at Proverbs chapter 17, starting in verse 27. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Verse 4, Ecclesiastes 10. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So that calm, peaceful composure can prevent these unwise decisions that we can make. Oftentimes, it's this foolish pride within ourselves that causes people to leave too early from a disagreement or confrontation. And if only we practice this calm resilience where wisdom can enter in and help people to achieve something greater than what is just on their mind as an impulse. So when that boss of yours or when that authority figure in your life ticks you off, collect yourself. You know, collect yourself, let calmness into that matter, and, and, and let wisdom speak into your life rather than that impulsiveness that you might regret. It's written this in Proverbs 25, verse 15, With patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. I'm hoping my children aren't in here to listen to that one. But that patience and that calmness, it makes for this environment where wisdom tends to operate better, where you can talk things through. Now, it's not in every situation, but in a lot of situations, it, it works this way. Verse 5, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun. There's that term again, which means without God or God is at a distance or God is not existent at all. As it were an error proceeding from the ruler... Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in low places. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. What's this all about? Well, this is talking about how not all rulers are wise, and we have record of this throughout human history, don't we? Unwise rulers that have gone through it. Now, why is this? Well, according to Kohelet, or the preacher here, it's because things are out of order, that they are just impractical they don't make any sense 
And when things are disordered and they're chaotic, it's, it's difficult for wisdom to thrive in that environment. Foolishness thrives in environments of, of confusion, of chaos. Folly thrives in places where the leadership that is in place, they're unwise. Doesn't it just make sense? Isn't it just pragmatic to think that if someone can't make good choices, wise choices in their own private life, that they can't possibly make good choices in their public life? Doesn't that just make sense? That if there is foolishness that is present in a person's private life, how can foolishness not be present in their public life? And so when we look at leaders, we can't separate those leaders from their private life and how we think that they'll serve the masses in their public life. That's an impossibility. And so when we as a church, we look at positions of leadership within the church, whether that be a ministry staff or lay leaders, we do consider private lives. We do ask questions of people. And many we th- will think that we're prying or something like that. But the thing is, is we can't separate the two. You're not all that different in private and in public. You're pretty much the same. You can hide things a little bit better in the public eye, though. You know, you, you kind of like on your best behavior, but behind those closed doors, that's what we want to know. Now, we're not looking for perfection because none of us are, but we are looking for this posture that is pointed toward what is honoring to God. We are looking for hearts that are positioned toward God. And when wrong people are placed in leadership, it's, it's just a headache for everybody else that's under their leadership. It's a really, really terrible experience. Now, verses 16 and 17 get into this a little bit more, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. Let's look at verse 8 first. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. This is just more funny pictures that are happening in my head. But there are several psalms that speak to this picture of falling into a pit. Here are just a couple of them. Chapter 7, verse 15. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. Funny. Chapter 9, verse 15, the nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. How many times has this happened? You, we, we think that we're building these like global relationships of peace later to find out that decades later, it's those very countries that we helped out that are our enemies now. Crazy. But this is just real life. This is just how it is, right? You, you dig this pit, and then you fall into the pit that you dug. You help that person, and that's the person that actually comes back, back to bite you. It's just this foolishness that's at work in the world. Sometimes we do this to ourselves when we just sabotage our own progress. We all know people like this, and maybe this is you, where you are actually your biggest obstacle to moving forward, to thriving, to flourishing, that you're the one that's creating all this problem, this mess for yourself. When a lot of people actually want to help you, but you keep digging these holes and you keep falling into them. And then there's that second part in verse 8 about a serpent biting him who breaks through the wall. Whenever you read about these sorts of things in the Old Testament, this is um, about payback. 
So just think about payback. This is a story about payback. So Amos chapter 5 verse 19 paints this same picture about someone leaning their hand against the wall. They fall through and the serpent bites them on the other side. I mean, what's the likelihood of that? It's kind of superstitious. And so the thought behind this is exactly what happened in Acts chapter 28. And you recall what happened there. Um, Paul survives being out in, at sea. He goes to Malta. He starts building a fire and warming things up so that he can like, get warmed up and eat food and stuff. And so picking up the story, Acts 28, starting in verse 3. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So in, in biblical times, they, they viewed things like this snake as payback. That, you know what, you got away with something. And you never face justice. And so the snake's going to bite you. And when the snake bites you, that's your payback. That's what you deserve. That's the background to, to that story. So verse 9, he who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. So similar to verse 7, you do something to the benefit of yourself or the benefit of others, and it ends up hurting you. It, it happens, right? Stuff happens. You, you try to do good, and then you get injured in the process. Verse 10, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. So just imagine a blunt axe. You're out there and you're wanting to chop wood to make nice planks to build something beautiful, but your hammer's not sharpened and it's this blunt thing and you're just like hacking away at it, just thinking like, I'm going to make this whether it happens or not, and you're just using more strength and it takes you longer and you're just pummeling this thing. The thing is we have to think about the right tools for the job, right? That it's not always about strength. It's not always about speed. Sometimes we need tools to be sharpened, and that process can take a little bit more time. But there are people who don't want to take the time to plan out what's ahead for them. And sometimes it's a foolish move to go ahead without the proper tools. So that impatience and that lack of planning, they are evidence of foolishness. And so rather than building something with these nice planks of wood, you have these pummeled pieces of wood and it looks messed up. It's not nice. It's just a beat up wood that you just built with. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Another really funny picture. All right, so before the snake charmer even gets to work, it the serpent bites somebody or bites him. And a sign of foolishness, maybe because that charmer, not so much maybe wasn't prepared ahead of time, but maybe this is about procrastination because in the previous verse it was about kind of like not planning, but here it is poor planning, but maybe something about procrastination as well and that not planning well enough to kind of go with how things are scheduled. So in verse 10, we have something about rushing into something. Verse 11, maybe that charmer waited too long. 
and didn't get his flute out long enough and let the snake out and just caught up talking to somebody and then it bit somebody. Who knows? The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. So foolishness with our words. The, the fool consumes themselves because their mouth invites problems. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 6. A fool's lips walks into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. I've seen this a few times on BART and at Raiders games. It's just not a good thing. The fool just can't keep quiet. Right? You, you, you just kind of have something to say. And it gets you in a lot of trouble. It's better just to be quiet. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? So always something to say. Always just keeps talking. You ever encounter people like this? Just keep talking. Maybe you guys are one of them. I don't know. If you are, be quiet. You don't have to have an opinion for everything. Please, Lord. Right? Some, sometimes you can just be quiet, but you can see it in a fool that they can't. They just keep multiplying their words. We all have these times of foolishness, though, don't we? We all end up saying things when we shouldn't be saying things. Now, uh, this foolishness happens under the sun, right, without God, that God's at a distance. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, the psalmist wrote, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That when someone says there is no God, that is an epitome of living under the sun, living without God. And oftentimes when we speak, we aren't seeking God. We speak as people under the sun. And that's a really foolish thing to do. There, there needs to be an exercise of patience in seeking God and not to be impulsive with your own thoughts. So that in a conversation, you don't have to say things right away. Or when an email comes through, you don't have to respond right away. Or that text, you don't have to respond right away because that communication is really powerful because it influences people whether it's negatively or positively we, we need to be careful about those things to be wise about those things because our words reveal what is really in our heart Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 starting in verse 34 for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Dang. Every careless word? For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. One of the most evident things about a person who has been transformed by God is their language. The things that they say, the songs that they sing along to, the jokes that they tell, it changes. It changes. And Jesus said this to whom? This is the crazy thing because he's talking to church people. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to religious people. He's talking to God people. 
Look back in verse 34. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? And he's saying this to church people who follow the law of God, who are supposed to know all this stuff. Why is he saying that to them? Because I really doubt that the Pharisees were cursing. I really doubt that they were using God's name in vain. They were kind of saying all the right stuff. What is he addressing? He's addressing their heart. That it's venomous, like a brood of vipers. That there is gossip. That there is slander. That there are lies being shared. That there is talk behind people's backs. And they're justifying it by saying... Yeah, we're the best believers that there are. No one knows the Bible better than we do. We, we're the best um, believers of God that there are. And yet we will give an account for every careless word that we speak. We need to be really careful about what we say. The problems with what you say point to the condition of your heart more than anything else. And those words that come out of our hearts will justify us or they will condemn us. So this is a heart problem. It's not a mind problem. It's not a word problem. It's a heart problem. And when God has transformed someone's heart, their heart will produce words of wisdom. And those who haven't been transformed by the power of God, they will produce words of foolishness. Maybe you believe that your words are wise when they're actually foolish. And I can tell you that if it's gossip or if it's slander, it is foolish, no matter how wise we think that they are. And we will give an account for those careless words. Koheleth gets into this a little bit more in verse 20. We'll get into that soon also. Verse 15. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. So fools make things just unnecessarily difficult for themselves, right? Before, before you get going, you really need to figure out where you're going. And if you don't know where you're going, it's hard to get there, right? So you, you kind of need to figure those things out. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. So... Verse 16 is this picture of a ruler without wisdom and it's this sign of foolishness because everything around them is about gluttony. Everything around them is about indulgence, which is a sign of foolishness when your rulers are in high places and all this stuff is just too much. And so Koheleth brings about just sensibility. What is a sensible thing? Verse 17 is about a ruler who is proper, who is appropriate with the things that they have. Now verse 18, through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. So wisdom, it, it, it takes work. It takes effort. There's this effort, an initiative that needs to be taken, to, and it needs to be developed. And if we're lazy about being wise, bad things happen, because that foolishness starts creeping in. Verse 19, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. God made material things for good. Food is good. Drink is good. Money's good. 
they can all be used for good. Enjoying our life in the present is a good thing. He's not meant to have us live misery or in misery. So that food, drink, money, it can all be really good. We can all enjoy life to the fullest. It just needs its proper place with God in the midst of all of it and not removed from him, not living under the sun. Now this phrase, money answers everything, is, is quite interesting because what's that all about? Well, it's just a material gift. And what, what, it, what is it about money that makes it just good for everything? It's just, it's, it's so versatile. It can be used for lots of different things. It can be used to ser- serve many different purposes. In verse 20, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king nor in your bedroom curse the rich for a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. You know, it's more of a possibility for people to control their words in public. But those real words, the, what your heart is really thinking, they come out in private, right? In the bedroom with your spouse or in your family within the home where your kids can hear what you're saying about people, gossiping about people, slandering, or your roommates, your housemates, they can hear all this kind of stuff. And then it's just a matter when that same heart that is open to share things in private kind of comes out in public. And so you can probably exercise that tact a little bit more in public, but you can't in private, but eventually it leaks out into the public. A bird of the air will carry your voice. This is so true. There are quite a few little birds out there because stuff does get back to people. Um, Maybe you've experienced this yourself. I, I sure have. There are things that are said at the church about various people, about myself, about the leadership at the church, about whoever it is, and the funny thing is Eventually, it gets back to us. We hear about it. We usually kind of let it go because we're attempting to practice wisdom. We don't want to like, confront every single thing that happens, but we, we know. We know. And people hear a lot of things that weren't supposed to get back to them. See, our hearts, they do take over what we say. It, 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 you can't hide it. And that foolishness that eventually gets spoken, people hear that. Our hearts reveal who we really are. And you might be able to hide it for a little while because you're just sharing it in private behind closed doors or some office tucked away at work or in a bathroom or whatever it may be that you're just trying to say things in quiet. But those little birds are out there that say like, hey, did you know so-and-so said this? Hey, did you know? And you just start hearing stuff. I encourage you to go directly to people and talk with people you have issues with instead of behind their back because that's foolishness. 
We have to deal with our foolishness in the present because in the present is our training ground. Dallas Willard has this really great saying. He says, we are training for reigning. So essentially what that means is we are training now for reigning for everlasting. And so what foolish things are influencing us, influencing our heart to say and do things that are unwise? The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. We've all chosen foolish ways. So what are we to do with that? The second part of Isaiah 53, 6 is this. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all speaking to us about Jesus who takes our iniquity if we turn to him in faith. So this morning, afternoon, maybe we we need to come before God to lead us into wisdom, that we need to ask Jesus for forgiveness for the gossip, for the slander that we've been spreading about others. We need that because we've all turned our own ways. We all think that we are wiser than we are, that overly wise that we talked about not too long ago, that we think we're overly wise. And yet that's a way of foolishness. We need to be humble about this. We need to admit our foolishness, to confess our foolishness before that pride within us, what we would deem as a righteousness, but it's a self-righteous pride more than anything else that is destroying you from within and is destroying the community around you because it is causing mistrust. And it prevents us from receiving wisdom. Let's ask to be able to hear God's truth, for him to empower us to live this out in a very transformative way. Let's pray. Lord, we are an imperfect church uh, that needs a lot of help, and yet you've been so faithful to our ministry um, over the past 18 years um, through some highs and some actually really low lows that you've just helped us through all of it. You've remained confident in us for some reason, and so we ask in humility, God, that you would work within us, that we would be pursuing wisdom, that we would flee from the foolish ways, that we would remove ourselves from being under the sun, that we want your presence in us. God, thanks so much uh, for these people here. I pray your blessing upon them. In Jesus' name, amen.